0: Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr.
1: Sergio Zanotti.
0: So let's get it started with our program. As we mentioned at the beginning, we will do the first part will be an overview of uh, super users, outliers, and prolonged mechanical ventilation, followed by a discussion with Dr. John D'Ambrosio, one of my colleagues, and a Q&A for the audience uh, uh, after that as well. So what we'll do in the first part of this uh, webinar is uh, overall start with an introduction and uh, explore some of the concepts related to outliers, hotspots, and super users, and how that might apply to prolonged mechanical ventilation in the ICU. We will dive a little bit deeper in understanding this particular population that we are addressing today, which is that of prolonged mechanical ventilation, which is a subset of chronically, critically ill patients. And finally, we'll talk about some of the strategies that we can utilize to really create value for this population, both in improving outcomes and uh, uh, decreasing the cost of care for these particular patients. As we all know, uh, the business of healthcare has been changing over the last several decades. What was traditionally a very volume-driven healthcare fee-for-service is moving and evolving into a value-driven healthcare, which is really much more related uh, to the overall value delivery of quality over cost. Some aspects of medicine today are still very much in the volume-driven healthcare environment, yet critical care is moving faster probably towards a value-driven healthcare, but really we need to determine what do we do to create value in the ICU. When we think about value or creating value in the ICU, I think it's always a good place to start to review what do we mean by value. And really by value, we are talking about improved quality or over at a lower cost. So both we're trying to drive quality up and drive costs down. And when we think of quality, we're thinking of both patient outcomes and patient experience. Those are both aspects of quality care. And in terms of cost, it both includes direct and indirect cost of caring for patients in the ICU. So a lot of what we'll be talking about today really centers around the creation of value in identifying a special population that we have traditionally ignored that might be very prime for value-based care in the ICU. So what are we talking about? There's three overlapping circles. One of them includes outliers. The other one is super users or hotspots. And then we're trying to apply this to the ICU patient. And what we're really trying to focus or hone on here is where all these diagrams or these circles converge. And that red star really is as I'll propose to you, uh, one of the the groups that falls right in that area is that of prolonged mechanical ventilation and how we can really target these patients in terms of driving value both from a quality outcome perspective, but also being very conscious of how we can manage cost. So let's start by talking about outliers. And the outliers, I mean, from a purely statistical standpoint, Are defined our our data values or value that lie outside of the overall pattern of of a distribution. So usually when something is really one or two standard deviations away from a standard distribution, we talk about an outlier. When we think about what we do in healthcare, especially in the ICU, we measure different processes and outcomes such as hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay, duration of mechanical ventilation, very important for us in the ICU, but also obviously at at the heart of what we're talking about today. Certain um, process metrics such as door to balloon for acute MIs or door -door to needle for for thrombolytics in acute strokes. Also in sepsis might be time to first antibiotic from admission to the ED. All these things are things that we measure over a continuum and usually what we see is that we talk about means or averages, and that's what we usually talk about in terms of what we're trying to target, some people look at medians, which is really the middle point as opposed to just a mathematical or arithmetic average, but we always will find patients who are way out there, usually on the right side of this of this curve, that we talk about as outliers. And it's not unfrequent when we are talking about any of these particular metrics that we try to discard the outliers and focus on the means and the medians. So really talking about the outliers as something that is noise. And what I'm going to propose today is that perhaps we definitely should focus on those patients in the middle, which is the normal distribution, but there is something in these outliers that requires attention and that can actually constitute a focus of our efforts. In other words, the outliers are not the noise. They might be the signal when we're talking about value. So let's talk a little bit now about super users or hotspots and how we came across this concept. So many years ago, in 1896, uh, Pareto was a, a Italian economist, noted and published that an observation that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the population, and that became very very famously after after that known as the Pareto rule or the 80-20 rule. And it's an observation that keeps uh, repeating itself in multiple environments, both in business, but also in processes, in healthcare, and in many other areas of life. And the idea really is, is that a very small number of inputs determined the vast majority of the output that you're measuring. So 20% Of the diagnosis that we see in critical care represent 80 percent of the patients or the cost of care etc etc so really trying to focus on the what people have come to know as the critical few what are the things that really drive the vast majority of a given output if you move that forward many many years in the recent years in crime uh, trying to combat crime in, in major cities a lot of police departments have started mapping where crimes occur and creating these crime hotspot maps. And what they've been able to identify is areas where there's a concentration of crime. And what they found in many large cities is that by focusing on these areas and increasing police surveillance in these hotspots, you can actually bend the curve of crime and avoid crime. And it's really an interesting concept of really trying to focus where the majority of your problems are understanding that's going to be a very small number of inputs. So how do this applies to healthcare? care? Well, um, I think that uh, in, the, in the last years, um, one of my colleagues who was actually in the hospital that I was um, working prior in Camden at Cooper Health, and um, was one of the, the pioneers in really thinking about hotspotters in healthcare. And it's a very interesting story. This is uh, the picture there is Dr. Jeff Brenner, who really, I mean, championed this concept of hotspotting uh, or identifying hotspotters in a community. And he really took the idea after getting involved with the Camden Police Force, trying to decrease ki- crime in, in Camden. And he was one of the big proponents of using hot spot maps. And either, even though the police did not really think that he, that was a good idea or shunned his idea at the, at the beginning, he quickly started thinking, what would happen if I start mapping the community of Camden in terms of hotspots for healthcare resource utilization? And he started working with different databases in the early 2000s, and what he found was that there were two blocks in Camden that accounted for an enormous amount of hospital visits and resources. And those two blocks included Abigail House, which was a nursing home, and Northgate 2, which is a low-income housing community. And what he found is that in a period of six years, from 2002 to 2008, 900 people from those two blocks represented 4,000 hospital visits to hospitals and EDs in Camden, and that equaled a foot bill or a healthcare bill of over $200 million. So he identified that a very small number of patients were consuming an enormous amount of resources in a very circumscribed and poor community such as Camden, New Jersey. Atul Gawande wrote about Dr. Brenner in 2011. Following that, Dr. Brenner, became a MacArthur Genius Awardee. He created something that today is known as the Camden Coalition for Healthcare, and really by focusing on these hotspotters was able to produce enormous, enormous savings and costs. but more importantly, he was able to improve the healthcare of these super users or hotspotters. What he identified was that outliers matter, and that those 900 patients, or 1,000 patients roughly, represented only 1% of the whole population of Camden, yet they were consuming 30% of the healthcare cost. So if he could bend the, the curve on that 1%, he could really create significant amounts of savings in healthcare, but more importantly, he was able to improve the healthcare of that community. So Dr. Brenner, I mean, now is I think working uh, elsewhere, but uh, taking this idea of hotspotters to a larger platform with United Healthcare. but clearly a lot of um, uh, cities and, and practices have adopted this approach of really focusing on their super users and trying to bend the curve there in terms of improving outcomes in terms of quality, but also controlling cost of healthcare by focusing on small number of, of patients who, who consume an enormous amount of resources. So I think that the, the argument that we'll make today is that in the ICU, perhaps the hotspotters or one of the big hotspotter groups is prolonged mechanical ventilation. So why, does, why do most critical care or sound critical care programs work on duration of mechanical ventilation? Well, I think that there's a lot of reasons. And one reason is that clearly it's something that we commonly do in the ICU. I mean, requiring support with a ventilator or a non-invasive ventilation is a common reason, if not the most common reason, for admission to a medical ICU. It's also a common reason for surgical patients to be admitted post-surgery surgery to ICUs. Um, a, a second very powerful reason is that there's tremendous variability in how a teams across the country care for this patient, but also there might be variability in how a particular patient during a particular episode of care is cared by by an ICU team. And finally, we know that duration of mechanical ventilation or being on a ventilator is associated with significant amount of uh, increased morbidity and mortality, so clearly being able to liberate patients from mechanical ventilation is an important quality aspect that can improve the outcome of our patients. This is uh, data taken from one of our ICUs, I mean, it's a standard medical ICU, uh, 18-bed ICU. This is one month in January, and what you can see here is plotted are all the the patients that were on a mechanical ventilator during this month, and you can see that um, you have um, the, for each individual case, you have hours of mechanical ventilation, and what you find is that clearly there is a couple of outliers that seem to have consumed significant more hours than the average or the median. Traditionally, when ICUs are looking at this, what they'll do is they'll try to disregard the outliers, and uh, especially those on the on the right, and say, well, these patients are outliers; they don't really represent the quality of what I'm doing in my ICU because my my uh, protocols are really geared at the patients in the middle. I would say two things. One is that those patients, those first three patients that are on the left side, that had a very short duration of mechanical ventilation are also outliers, yet nobody seems to, to worry about those because they usually make the number which we try to target for, which is a lower number, look better. But the number two is that I wouldn't ignore the outliers. I would just maybe think that are there different things that we could do to understand and to target these particular patients that might be a prime example of hotspotters in the ICU. So here you have uh, the same data expressed in a table. So we had 56 uh, total occurrences of mechanical ventilation for a total uh, mechanical ventilation hours for the month of January of 4,766 hours. The average duration of mechanical ventilation was 86 hours, and when you look at the average duration of mechanical ventilation in days, it was around 3.6. So that's kind of what most people talk about when they say, oh, my average duration of mechanical ventilation is 3.5, 3, 3 2.8 days. We're talking about an average over a given time period. If you now break up and, or add more data, you can look at the geometric mean, you can look at the median, which we said is not the mathematical average, but the middle point, you can maybe exclude outliers on both sides. And you see that the medium in terms of days and in terms of hours is lower than the average. For this particular ICU, they had a target of 60 hours for their median. So they would say that they're in compliance with their, with their targets, which are arbitrary, obviously. But when you dig a little bit deeper and we start looking at what happens to those patients who are on the vent for less or for more than seven days, and what we say, okay, if the average is 3.6 or 2.3, the medium, seven days or more would be beyond what we consider to be average or that normal range. So they might be falling into a more prolonged course or maybe at a higher risk of being true outliers. Now, what we see is that of all the patients that we that 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 were on the ventilator, those who were on the ventilator for less than seven days on average were on the ventilator for two point five days and these are the patients that usually have an acute illness are are weaned successfully uh, by following our protocols and that represented the majority of the patients forty seven yet in terms of the total percent of days consumed or the total days of mechanical ventilation, it's only 58%. So there's still a big chunk of mechanical ventilation hours to be accounted for. When we look at those patients who were on the mechanical ventilator for more than seven days, their average now is 10.3. So clearly these groups are significantly different, and these would be considered outliers. There are two standard deviations beyond what we see for the for the for the average for all patients these were eight patients which is a little bit i mean more than than 10% of the patients yet they consumed 42% of the total hours of mechanical ventilation so clearly this is a hot spot a small group of patients who consume a disproportionate amount of resources, and we are quantifying resources here as days on mechanical ventilation. So if we were to say that for each hour of mechanical ventilation we could assign a dollar cost, right, we would say that a very small percent of the patients consumed 42 percent of the total cost of care for these patients. So again, I mean, I think it illustrates how this particular group might be a prime target for a hotspotter or super user approach to drive value. So a hotspot in prolonged mechanical ventilation is a hotspot is a small group of patients with a large impact on the utilization of resources. So for mechanical ventilation, as we saw, they constitute a very small number of, in terms of number of patients, yet they consume a disproportionately large amount Of hours or days of mechanical ventilation. So, when we think about that Venn diagram I showed with um, the uh, outliers, the super user hotspots, and the ICU patients, I think that prolonged mechanical ventilation falls into that spot very, very nicely. And that's why we're talking about that today. So, let's dive in a little bit more into this world of prolonged mechanical ventilation and just explore. What do we know about prolonged mechanical ventilation? What does the literature afford us in terms of understanding this population a little bit better? So when you look at different reviews in the literature, what you'll find is that there are a large number of terms and different definitions that people have utilized to describe the same group of patients. Patients who are on the ventilator longer than what you would consider your average of, let's say, 3.5 days. So that includes prolonged mechanical ventilation. Some people have tackled these by admission to a specialized unit that specializes in weaning patients off mechanical ventilation. People have talked about long-term mechanical ventilation. Chronic critical illness is obviously a, a, a topic or a, a, a subset of patients that has received a lot of attention in the last decade. And is these patients that don't die but don't fully recover and are chronically critically ill, and the one type of patients that go to long-term acute care centers or patients who stay in the ICUs for a long time. Some people have looked at tracheostomy as the event that classifies these patients as being prolonged mechanical ventilation. Some people talked about ventilator dependence, but really a a, a large number of definitions and terms are utilized. But when we look at this, what what I like to think about is uh, the group that really starts after 96 hours. So this is based on our ICD code 96.72, that is 96 hours or more of mechanical ventilation. Before four days, I think that it's hard to talk up, even start thinking about prolonged mechanical ventilation. But when somebody starts to pass day five and further, you might start looking at somebody who's at high risk of being on prolonged or a more prolonged course on mechanical ventilation. What's the official definition of prolonged mechanical ventilation? According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the United States, and this is a definition that is taken from the National Association for Medical dire- Direction and Respiratory Care, it is 21 consecutive days with six or more hours per day of mechanical ventilation support. That is what defines prolonged mechanical ventilation in Medicare and Medicaid Services' uh, view. And I think it's a It's an operational um, definition that I think is worthwhile. But the idea really is that we should be doing things and thinking about these patients way before 21 days, and that's why I like to think of kind of four days if somebody's still on the ventilator, these patients might not be or might be at a higher risk of not being extubated immediately and we should start thinking about what can we do to move this forward. As I mentioned earlier, tracheostomy is obviously a sentinel event in, in these patients. A lot of these patients will eventually be ventilated through a tracheostomy for many, many reasons. And there are DRG codes that can be utilized to identify these patients retrospectively. The DRG codes that most people look at are DRG 4 and 5. And really, I mean, what you find is that these patients, on average, um, will have significant length of stays in terms of what what is documented based on the APA DRGs um, nationally. So the tracheostomy might be another way of identifying these patients. Why do these patients stay on the the ventilator? So the pathophysiology of prolonged mechanical ventilation obviously is a very um, complex topic, but I think that at its essence it's a disbalance or an imbalance between an increased respiratory load and a decreased respiratory muscle performance. So when patients have this this balance, they are likely to remain on the ventilator. And there are many, many reasons, many reasons in critical illness that can lead to this, but understanding this this disbalance, I think at its essence, is a good way to start thinking about the pathophysiology of prolonged mechanical ventilation. What are identifiers or what are some of the um, factors that we could utilize to predict who will be on prolonged mechanical ventilation. That obviously is something that makes sense. If you could, if you could know from the get-go this patient is going to require a trach, you could probably intervene with the family a lot earlier. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a, a perfect. Um, eight ball that can really tell us what the trajectory is, but there's some studies that have looked at this. Back in 1996, Senef did a very large study where they looked at what are the factors that predict duration of mechanical ventilation, and he really focused on a lot of the patient factors and determined that the greatest determinant is disease, the second greater determinant is the acute physiologic score or the acuity. And then he found some other things that related to these Uh, to these patients in terms of predicting a prolonged mechanical ventilation. I think that all of these are very important, but a lot of these might not be modifiable. Uh, They depend on on the disease. What we also now believe, and although there's no good studies about this, is that our processes of care also have a tremendous impact on whether somebody will have a prolonged duration of mechanical ventilation. And we'll talk more about that a little bit further on. This is a, a more recent study that suggests a simple tool that can be utilized to predict prolonged mechanical ventilation, it's called the eye track And the idea is that for each one of these, you give the patient a point. I actually stands for intubation in the ICU, so that would be a point. And you do this at the time of intubation. If they're tachycardic, they have renal dysfunction as measured by a BUN over 25, they have acidemia with a pH below 725, they have a creatinine of 2.0 or a 50% increase in their creatinine, or they have a bicarb below 20, you can give a point for each one of these. And when patients have four or more, it is more likely that they will require seven days or more of mechanical ventilation, and also more likely that they require 14 days or more of mechanical ventilation. So the higher the points of the eye trach, the higher the likelihood that they would require prolonged mechanical ventilation. Um, When you look at the receiving operating curve, you can see that even though it's not perfect, it does have a better performance than just utilizing a severity score, such as Apache 3, Apache 2, the SOFA score, or just purely the acute physiologic um, score. So again, I think it, it helps us think about patients that are higher risk, but I don't think that it's actionable at that time, because in theory, you wouldn't change the way you treat these patients on day one, and you wouldn't decide that you are going to do it, for example, a treat on day one, but it can be a a way of thinking of these patients as being at higher risk. Like I said, on average, most of our patients will be weaned within a certain time frame. Uh, Like the data I showed you was an average of 3.5 days of mechanical ventilation, but I do think that in those patients who don't wean once their acute episode is immediately corrected on the first or second attempt to weaning, we should start thinking about what are some of the things that we we need to evaluate to optimize the weaning process in these patients as they start moving into a prolonged mechanical ventilation phase. And there are things like thinking of the cardiovascular state. The most common things that can prevent weaning are heart failure and ischemia. There's ways to figure this out. Looking at metabolic factors such as electrolytes uh, phosphorus, magnesium, calcium are important ones for weaning. Endocrine is important, although not that frequent, but clearly patients who have untreated hypothyroidism might have difficulty weaning and, and prolonged mechanical ventilation. So something to think about in the right context. Infection is a very common cause of failure to wean, uh, not only having an infection with sepsis, but even patients who have an asa- a systemic inflammatory response, things that we need to, to evaluate. Are there nosocomial infections that are causing a delay in weaning? Nutrition, both um, over and under nutrition can cause problems. Overfeeding and those who have a limited ability to uh, eliminate CO2 can be a problem for weaning. Not common, but in some subsets of patients, something that we need to pay attention to. Obviously drugs, something that I think uh, with um, with now, I mean, the much more common occurrence of having pharmacists, clinical pharmacists rounding with us should be less of a problem. But making sure that we're evaluating any drugs that can suppress the respiratory drive or induce respiratory weakness. And finally, there are some patients who do have psychological fears to the weaning process. And in these patients, obviously, the uh, interventions to decrease the presence of delirium and early mobility with biofeedback for their anxiety might be tools that can help them get off the mechanical ventilator sooner. A big question in prolonged mechanical ventilation relates to the timing of tracheostomy, and this is always something that um, people argue about. Uh, The reality is that we don't have any clear-cut data that can, for every patient, tell us this is the perfect time to trach. On one hand, I think that people, uh, both physicians and families, sometimes want to avoid another procedure. On the other hand, totally patients who have been who have received tracheostomies and survived will invariably ask why did you trach me before because it was much more comfortable having a tracheostomy than an ET tube going down my throat so when you look at the literature and we look at the current guidelines i think that most people would agree that traching large populations of critically ill patients before day 4 probably offers no benefit, and that was that would be very, very early tracheostomy. However, as you move forward, the idea, the traditional idea that at two weeks you start thinking about that, which really can push things forward, is probably too late. Some people have done studies 10 days early, more than 10 days late, And there's been studies that have shown that that early trick might be associated with better outcomes. And many studies have also looked at seven days, and although they've not shown uh, improvements in mortality, they clearly have shown decreases in certain outcomes and morbidity. So, again, I think that the, the sweet spot probably is around seven days to start thinking about if a patient needs to be traked or not. Not necessarily need to trake a patient on day seven, but by that day you should have an idea what the plan is to wean them or if the patient is suitable for a tracheostomy. So again, I mean, these are just some dates that have been thrown around, but I wanna emphasize that we really don't have clear directives based on evidence on what's a perfect timing, but most people would agree that earlier is better without being too early. Uh, where you really, I mean, might do a trick that's unnecessary. What are some of the complications associated with prolonged mechanical ventilation? Some of the complications are very similar to those that we see in patients who are just on mechanical ventilation for a shorter time. Some of them might be more pronounced or more likely the longer you stay on the ventilator. Infection, clearly an important one, and not only uh, ventilator-associated pneumonias, but also other nosocomial infections such as CLABSI, cath- catheter-associated urinary tract infections, and C. diff. Renal failure is often seen in critically ill patients and clearly can be a complicating factor in patients on mechanical ventilation. As we'll see further on, it's actually a pretty de- uh, strong determinant of poor outcome. Ill is commonly seen in these patients. Those patients who have a ET2 for a long time can have laryngeal edema and tracheomalacia and other types of of injuries to the airways. Patients who have a tracheostomy are often at risk for complications associated with a tracheostomy, including infection and bleeding, and the more uh, catastrophic, uh, but not as frequent, complication of a fistula that sometimes can go into the nominate artery. It can cause a hemorrhagic shock and death. And also pneumothorax is something that we see more frequently the longer somebody stays On a mechanical ventilator. As we move to prognosis, one of the studies that I find fascinating was a study done by Cox and uh, collaborators looking at the perception at the time of tracheostomy of what the outcome would be from families, looking at what the physicians would think, and then finally uh, following these patients for a year and looking at what reality really showed. And what they found was that there is significant misaligned expectations between caregivers and decision makers and clinicians caring for the patient. At the time of tracheostomy, when they asked family members what was the likelihood of survival of that patient at one year, 93% of of family and, and caregivers thought that their loved one would be alive at one year. They felt that they would be back to their functional state at one year and they thought that they would have a good quality of life 83% of the time. When you compare that to what the clinicians caring for that same patient thought, you can see that there's a big, big discrepancy and a misalignment in terms of overall um, prognosis. What was very interesting about this study was that at one year, only 9% of the patients were alive and home with, without significant impairment. So a very small percent of patients actually um, made it to a meaningful recovery. But what was also very telling about this study was that only twenty five percent of the family members interviewed, so one in four reported that they actually had a discussion about survival, what to expect about and what to expect in terms of care and what to expect in terms of quality of life for their loved one with the physicians. So clearly this study identified two very powerful um, problems. Number one is a lot of decisions are made based on unrealistic expectations from family. And number two, as clinicians, we are not sharing with families meaningful information in terms of survival, functional status? What does it entail caring for this patient? What happens to patients in a similar situation? Which I think is important if we really want to provide patient-centered care and if we want to provide appropriate goals of care that are aligned with what each patient and their family wants for their own healthcare. This is uh, a a large uh, meta-analysis by Emily and. and collaborators uh, looking at the long-term survival of critically ill patients treated with prolonged mechanical ventilation. And they really did an excellent um, job of really reviewing the, the vast literature, qualifying all the studies available. And what they found is that from the studies that they ultimately kept, 42 in total, uh, the average uh, age was around 64. So these were not necessarily young patients um 44% were female and their apache 2 scores were around 19 when you look at the outcomes of these patients what they found is that 29% of the patients had a mortality in hospital mortality so a third of these patients died in the icu in the hospital not necessarily in the icu but when you looked at one year of survival or mortality sorry 62% of them were dead so at one year more than half of the patients of this large meta-analysis died with prolonged mechanical ventilation. 19% of the overall cohort were able to get home and 50% were discharged. Now, I think that these are numbers that are important to share with families so they understand what their loved ones are looking at. Individual cases obviously do not necessarily conform to an average, but I think that if people understood what is likely to happen to their loved one, they might be in a better position to make a decision that is aligned with the goals of care that that patient would have wanted. So this is a very, I think, important study for for this field and really, I mean, compiles data from, from many, many studies in the literature. What about predicting the mortality of those patients who already have prolonged mechanical ventilation? So this is a very uh, interesting study. It's a multi-institutional study um, that was uh, basically looking at at the time of tracheostomy, you could uh, um, actually predict the mortality or the survival of these patients based on a very simple scoring system called the PROVENT score. And basically, as you can see, you have um, five categories, age equal over 65, age 50 to 64, platelet count below 150, vasopressor presence, and hemodialysis. And for each one of these, you assign the given points, and then what you can see is that for those patients who had more than two points, the likelihood of surviving was only 25%. So clearly, um, these patients are sick, and they have a very low likelihood of survival at one year. And I think, again, this can be information that is helpful for families in deciding what what the next step would be in terms of uh, uh, providing care. Those patients who had four or more of these actually had um, almost 100 percent mortality short-term. So again, I think something to, to think about and more information that we can use to discuss with our uh, with our families as we make these decisions. So we talked about prolonged mechanical ventilation from a very broad perspective, let's focus a little bit more in terms of Mr. Johnson who might be a typical patient. And a lot of what so far has determined a prolonged mechanical ventilation or the duration of mechanical ventilation has been attributed to patient factors, um, severity of disease, uh, what is the disease, and other factors. But what we know is that if Mr. Johnson we had several clones of mr johnson admitted to different hospitals what we would know is that more likely than not his 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 trajectory would be influenced by the process of care where somebody washed their hands or didn't wash their hands and gave him an infection where somebody did the, the proper sedation and, and 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 did holiday sedations and spts where somebody worked on getting him out of bed while he was in the ventilator, et cetera, et cetera. And what you can see is that there's a whole host of events here, um, the acute phase of mechanical ventilation, when we decide to do a trach, doing the trach, the mechanical ventilation portion on the trach, weaning off mechanical ventilation, death itself, and ultimately discharge alive. And what you'll see is that there's tremendous variability in all these events. And not only there's variability from hospital to hospital, but I think that there might be variability within a hospital in terms of how this is practiced on a daily basis. So the question is, what, what can we do to bend this curve on these super users and on these prolonged mechanical ventilation patients? And I think it's good to come back to our original equation of value and uh, in terms of outcomes and in terms of cost. So in terms of outcomes, I believe that probably the single most valuable approach to driving or improving outcomes in patients in the ICU, but definitely those who are on mechanical ventilation, is the implementation of of the ABCDEF bundle. And as many of you are aware, because you're probably doing either some elements or all these elements in your ICUs, the A stands for Assess, Prevent and Manage Pain, the C for both the um, Spontaneous Awakening Trial and the Spontaneous Breathing Trial, so the holiday Sedation, sedation holiday, and the SPT, C for the, chase of, the choice of analgesia and sedation following the PAD guidelines, and this has really taken us away from benzodiazepine drips, which are still utilized in many places, but have clearly been associated with worse outcomes in these patients. D stands for delirium, assessing, preventing, and managing. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a tools to treat delirium effectively, but there's clearly ways of identifying it, and there's ways of preventing it that might be very, very important. E is for early mobility and exercise, this whole concept of getting people on the ventilator up and standing and walking as soon as possible, even while they're on the ventilator. And finally, F is for engaging families and empowering them to be part of the process of care. When I was in training, if families would have to wait outside the ICU, would be allowed to come in and visit for very short periods of time. Today, they participate in round. they participate in care, and I think it's an important, important aspect of helping these patients recover as soon as possible to empower and include families in the care of these patients. So, some data on the ABCDEF bundle. This is one of the first large studies that uh, and consortium did uh, at seven community hospitals in California. And what you can see is the top two slides look at a total bundle compliance, so basically it was all or nothing. So are you doing all the elements of the bundle or not? And as the number of the proportion of patients increases, what you can see is that the survival in the hospital improves on average for every 10% improvement in the number of patients who get the whole bundle there's a 7% reduction in the risk of of death or a 7% improvement in survival. Same thing with looking at brain function and uh, looking at delirium and comma-free days. As you improve performance of all all or nothing of the bundle, you get a a, a significant improvement in the the lack of delirium and comma-free days for these patients. Now, underneath, we have what happens when you just use some elements of the bundle. And again, what they wanted to show was that an an increase in the number of elements being applied and you even have a more robust curve that is associated with improved hospital mortality and improved delirium and comma-free days. And what this illustrates is two things that are very important. Number one, that applying the A to F bundles improves outcomes. And number two, that it improves outcomes in a dose-response way which means that whatever, if you're not doing anything, whatever you start doing will improve outcomes. And as you do better and more, that improvement will continue to rise. And I think it's important for people to stay humble with the ATF bundles because a lot of people say, oh, we're doing it. But I can guarantee you that if you really think of this dose response, there is probably still opportunity for you to improve the dose and the effectiveness of what you're doing by improving each aspect of what you're doing further. So clearly you could be working on the A, B, C, D, F bundle for years to come and there still be opportunity to keep driving outcomes in the right direction. This is the second study or larger study that was published earlier this year looking at 15,000 ICU patients that utilized the ICU liberation collaborative bundles and again here you can see that the proportion of bundle elements that were performed as it increases you have an increase, significant increase in discharge from the ICU, significant increase in discharge from the hospital, so going, I mean, back home, and a significant decrease in the likelihood of dying in the ICU. So all, I think, very important patient-centered outcomes. Um, Additionally, you can see that as you increase the percent, you decrease days of mechanical ventilation, you decrease the likelihood of coma, delirium, the use of physical restraints, Of interest is you do increase the referral of pain. And I do think that this is related mostly to these patients being more active, more awake, and being able to tell us that they're in pain. But overall, clearly, um, all the the outcomes driven in the right direction, really showing that the implementation of these A, B, C, D, F bundles improve patient important outcomes, but also have a dose response type of effect which really encourages people to start and keep and keep working on improving. The second portion of this value equation is the cost. So, what can we do for cost? This is a, this is a paper that was published um, some years ago. This is work that that I had the opportunity to do with Steve Triziak and our colleagues, where we really focused on these um, prolong mechanical ventilation super users with the idea of trying to decrease variability. Of certain events and processes that we thought were critical in moving these patients forward. And the idea was to apply a Lean Six Sigma approach to decreasing variation and identifying where we could create value and decrease waste. So these are some of the important discussions that we've done. And really, the idea was that if we standardized the way we interacted with families and the the information that we shared, we could compress the timeframe of making decisions and getting patients either trached, extubated, or moving along to a long-term weaning facility. And what you can see is that in a small number of patients, um, this total of 259 patients, we basically, in a pre- and post-model, were able to decrease the hospital length of stay, which was the primary outcome, by around 20, 25%. So from an average of 29, a medium of 29 days to a medium of 22 days, and in terms of cost, direct cost, that represented a decrease in in caring for these patients from 66,000 per, per, per episode to 48,000, and those cost savings, when you multiply them by the number of patients, really gave a, a big number of savings for the hospital. So by focusing on a hundred plus patients, you could actually save a little bit over $2 million, which is really remarkable from a cost perspective. And the idea here being that we are standardizing the processes that lead to decision-making and information with our family members and these patients who are on the ventilator, who as they become prolonged mechanical ventilation, we've identified very early. So what we propose today is that you think about these patients in terms of maybe four big, big um, timeframes. There's the acute ventilator management, which really goes from the time they get intubated to day four or five. Then there's a decision to make the tracheostomy, which usually should start around day five to seven. And we are not saying that you should trach everybody on day seven, but by day seven, if you've done all the right family communications and discussions, you can actually um, have a plan for when you're going to trach them. Then the tracheostomy itself, um, which is usually occurs between day 7 and 10, and then there's the post-trach management to discharge, which really starts after the tracheostomy. And the idea is to continue weaning the patient, but also to move them to the right side of care um, uh, as soon as possible. Now, when you look at this, there's really a couple of um, very important family meetings. So there's three family meetings that are that are very important, and we have categorized them as the 24-hour family communication, which is, in the first 24 hours, there should be a documented conversation with families where we, we basically explain what's going on, set expectations for potential hospital course, identify all points of contact for decisions, identify the patient wishes. I mean, some patients might have very clear wishes of what they want and don't want, And in those patients, maybe a tracheostomy or prolonged mechanical ventilation would be inappropriate or misaligned with their wishes. And then at the same time, introduce family to case management and social workers so that they know that um, there's a team of people working with them and that this might require more than just an acute hospital stay in the ICU. What we found is that if somebody's on a ventilator by day five, the likelihood that they will need some sort of post-acute care is significantly increasing. So at this point, um, uh, give patients up, uh, family updates, really start introducing the concept that this patient may need a tracheostomy. We're not making decisions. We're just introducing the idea so they can ask the right questions, start thinking about, readdress the goals of care. In some patients, it might be very appropriate at this point to involve supportive care or palliative medicine if that's what the family and the, and the patient would want. For their, for, their, for their goals of care. So again, I think it's an opportunity to have a structured conversation with the family members. And then by day seven, the family should already be tuned into what's going on clinically, the need for a tracheostomy, the need for post-acute care. And at this point, maybe there, there's, it's a good time to outline what the plan would be for tracheostomy. Sometimes the plan might be, we failed three times with the weaning, we should go ahead and do the trach. Or it might be we're going to try weaning one or two more times based on these changes and see if we can get them extubated or it might be the patient never wanted a trach and maybe we're talking about compassion extubation or other alternatives but the idea really is by standardizing these three touch points at 24 hours five days and seven days you can compress the variation that occurs between providers and among one single provider and really drive the the care of these patients further and make sure that we are making decisions in a timely fashion. So we covered the idea of outliers, super users or hotspotters and prolonged mechanical ventilation and how they all fit together into what today is value-driven medicine. We talked about prolonged mechanical ventilation as that particular hotspotter population in our ICUs that we could be focusing on As opposed to just treating as outliers in our data. And really, even though they're a small group of patients, we now understand that they consume an enormous amount of resources and that there's a lot of prognostic information that we're not sharing with families that should be part of discussions to really understand what is the best way to move forward with these individual patients. And finally, we talked about how we could look at value from both improved outcomes and cost and target two very a concrete pathways, one, through the ABCDF bundles, and really driving and implementing those in our ICUs to improve patient outcomes, especially when they're on the ventilator. And two is how we can utilize standardized approaches to decrease the variation and compress the time frame of how we make decisions and communicate with families to drive length of stay down and really manage the cost of these patients. So if you have any questions, feel free to text them in. What we'll do now is we'll go to the second part of our webinar and have a conversation with uh, John D'Ambrosio, who's a colleague of mine. He's our program medical director at St. Francis in Delaware, and has also been working and interested in this particular problem in
1: his ICU.
0: John, how are you? Welcome to the webinar.
1: Thanks, Sergio, doing well.
0: So I know that you have embarked in uh, in these hotspotters um, in the last 18 months 12 months really focusing on this and and as i recall because of conversations we had in the past you would always talk about these patients but you'd always say well it's a small number of patients but i think that eventually it became very clear to you that even though it's a small number of patients they do consume an enormous amount of resources and when you presented your ideas to the hospital i think they they were received with a lot of of interest and can maybe you share with us what you've done at your at your shop
1: Sure. So, you first introduced this concept to me, and um, I heard this uh, similar lecture from you and presented the data in 2018. And every quarter, we go through our quarterly performance review, and we report our data out. And then every quarter, I report my data with and without the outliers, as they can, you know, in a small hospital or a 10-bed ICU, can really affect the data significantly, one or two extra patients can really kind of move things in the bad direction. So, and every time you tell me, John, you gotta look at those outliers. And uh, so I remember this lecture and, um, you know, obviously we're always trying to, you know, improve value in our hospital. And by reducing the uh, length of stay and cost of care of these patients, I decided to start this initiative. I um, introduced it to the C-suite and beginning of the year and the CMO really, as soon as I said it, his eyes kind of uh, popped open. He said, that, that is a great idea. I think that would be really interesting. And immediately, you know, I, I referred back to that Six Sigma Black Belt article to see how you went through this process and talked to you. And, um, you know, uh, I saw the, all the different uh, steps that you uh, took. And I de- identified the major source, uh, major variation in practice as being, the physicians um, and the timing of the tracheostomy, as you um, provided all that information here, um, you know, when one physician comes in, the next physician comes in. Sometimes they want to get the uh, they, they want to get comfortable with the patient, see the patient multiple times before making these decisions. But clearly, there's a you know we have to standardize this practice. And and um, I, so what I did was I. Um, like you said, had three family meetings scheduled day one, day five, and day seven and my goals uh just as you laid out in that um that diagram uh the day one is just to introduce the family to the team, uh discuss goals of care, discuss what mechanical ventilation is and what's what's going on with their loved one and then obviously, the family would be on rounds if they desired, and they would have updates, but the day five conversations um um really uh the point of that day five conversation as you said was to introduce the tracheostomy and uh you know go through everything in detail as far as what's going on with their loved one but introduce the concept of tracheostomy and provide the data as far as one year mortality 30 day or i'm sorry uh, mortality prior to discharge and Likelihood to be weaned off the ventilator and likelihood to go home. So to provide some of that data to the family, and um, and then kind of revisit in day seven to see if the family would like to have a tracheostomy. So, like I said, there's there was some variation from physician to physician, and what I, what I did was met with a team, met with the respiratory therapists, uh, social work, um, the RNs, and in practice guidelines to discuss that. We need these family meetings and to have some kind of uh, backup, if you will. So on, on rounds, a the respiratory therapist will say it's day four, day five of mechanical ventilation. Social work will automatically now, any mechanically ventilated patient we have, will um, it, she'll, she'll tell me or he, he will tell me that it's day five of mechanical ventilation. I want to schedule a family meeting. So we have all these kind of backups just in case there's a new physician coming in just coming on service and he's seeing a patient and we also have it on sign out too what day of mechanical ventilation uh the patient is actually on so we don't kind of miss that mark so
0: and, and but, i think that <laughs> something and we we'll talk about your your some of your 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 outcomes in a second but i think that clearly obviously a lot of the focus uh, of the uh, of the initiative of looking at super users is based on improving outcomes but there's also an important cost component and the biggest driver of cost for these patients is their length of stay in the icu and in the hospital because that's where they consume the, the most amount of resources so obviously being able to move them along to a lower level of care does improve um cost but i also think that from a patient experience what what i have found uh, and i want to hear um, your thoughts john is that um by forcing us to talk or by reminding us to, by, by prompting us, right, that nudging of talk on day 20, uh, 20, in the first day, talk on day five, talk on day seven, you're actually uh, probably discussing more than we think we usually discuss with patients and families and providing them with more useful information that ultimately, whatever the decision is, I think, improves their their experience with with, with that hospital stay, and it's probably an important quality indicator as well. Could you comment on that?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, going through this process, we haven't seen an increased number of tracheostomies, and I think the family is relieved. Like you said, there's a, a, a big disconnect between the physician and the family as far as expectation and actually how many family members are getting this information of uh, survival and prognosis. Uh, obviously, when patients going through, um, when, when a patient is uh has prolonged mechanical ventilation they're very sick and um so I do feel like you know uh communication does um build some trust with the family um and um th- they feel comfortable you know with you and and um and and in in the end you you want them to feel like you're doing everything for them and uh, I will emphasize that day five you know I'm just introducing this concept. But I'm still trying to get your loved one off the ventilator. If something changes. We can certainly, you know, um, extubate them or get them off the ventilator. Uh, but we're going to put the consult in on day seven. My goal is to perform a tracheostomy by day eight or ten. Eight to ten. Um, so, yeah, I do feel like they have um, they're more comfortable with that.
0: And and I think that there's there's other aspects, obviously, that that, that are associated with that. I mean, I think that the, the family meetings, as simple as it sounds, I mean, the more you get it hardwired, I think the more you move the needle. But obviously, that is associated also with, at the same time, during rounds, implementing the ABCDF bundles, moving that forward, early mobility, getting patients on the right station, off sedation. Those are all things that are very important. And I think that we, we shouldn't disregard that aspect of care as well. Uh, the other thing that we didn't talk about, John, and uh, I think is important, and that might be very center-dependent, is that another way of thinking of cost is um, current recommendations would push patients towards a bedside percutaneous tracheostomies in the ICU, as opposed to OR open tracheostomies, and standardizing how the tracheostomies are done at each institution is also another way of, of trying to, to decrease the cost and I think is also important. Um, any 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 comments on the tracheostomy itself? I mean, have you experienced? I think it's it's always perceived as a, as a challenge to get tracheostomies in some institutions. But when you really look at what really the variation is, it's our decision making to get to that tracheostomy. Any comments on your experience in this, John?
1: Yes, yeah, so it does take um, some time. From the, uh, for our hospitals, a small hospital, we have ENT and surgeons and, but they prefer to do the tracheostomy in the OR. So you need OR time, they have to clear their schedule. Um, so it will take two or three days, at least to get things kind of scheduled and laid out. And, um, you know, and, you know, I don't like a surgeon to clear his schedule and then cancel a tracheostomy, but sometimes it does happen and they're aware of that. Um, but um, yeah, it is a little bit of a challenge in my facility to get that tracheostomy. That's why it's important by day seven that we kind of have a general idea, have an idea exactly what the family would like to do as far as regarding that procedure. Absolutely. <clears throat> can,
0: can you share with us a little bit maybe of what you have found as you've implemented this in terms of first, maybe challenges that you found, I mean, with other medical staff, I mean, or with other um, ICU team members, and then maybe. What are some of the results that you've driven that, 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 that you think are positive? I,
1: I think the challenge still is the communication piece, because there's, you know, and, and like I said, you have to emphasize just the entire team, RN, social work, uh, respiratory physicians, because there's still that, you know, um, that um, everybody, there's still some people that say you have up until 14 days to make a decision for tracheostomy. So now, a day four, you know, families have it in their head. I, by day fourteen, I have to make that decision, and I, I sometimes that will come into play when I I talk with them. And so I just want the whole team to be on the same page when we when we communicate with families. So that that's been an obstacle a little bit. Um, as far as my outcomes, Sergio, uh, the first quarter of this year, fourteen percent of my patients on mechanical ventilation uh, were over seven days, and they represented forty-six percent of my vent days. The following two quarters, it was about 10%. It was 10% of my patients had um, mechanical ventilate, prolonged mechanical ventilation. And with um, scheduling these family meetings and uh, standardizing this discussion with family, um, those vent days at 10% represented 25% of our ventilation days. With the overall reduction of our ICU length of stay of 20% and our hospital length of stay of 24%, which just so happens to be the same <laughs> um, um, outcome that you actually published in your uh, study in Six Sigma Black Belt. Um, but yeah, so we've had a significant reduction in ICU length of stay and hospital length of stay. Um, and I sometimes this conversation happening earlier will, family will make that determination and they may just say, you know, we don't want the procedure, we prefer not to do it, we're gonna consider hospice and um, Or they need a little bit more time, but at least things are started and laid out earlier.
0: And and I think that you just pointed out at a very important aspect of, of this that, again, I think speaks to value, right? So it's very unfortunate when a patient who's not a good candidate for a tracheostomy or who might not even have wanted a tracheostomy ends up getting a tracheostomy, a prolonged course in the hospital or an LTAC, and they still has a horrible outcome. And then families usually say, if well, I would have known it was like that, I wouldn't have done it, right? So I think that a big part of this also is by standardizing these conversations is identifying those patients who might not be appropriate for a tracheostomy, where the family with the right information can identify, this is not aligned with what my, my loved one wants at this stage in their life for their care. And that is a saving that is very hard to quantify But it is very real, right, because you are avoiding unnecessary care, which is one of the most important drivers of increased cost in in, in our healthcare. So I think that, again, I mean, both from a value perspective, uh, in terms of providing better patient outcomes and experiences, but also driving cost, that aspect or those patients are very, very important. Have you found that? Maybe anecdotal, I don't think the numbers allowed you to look at this in terms of numbers, but you have identified, you think, John, more families that with the right information now are saying, this is not what my loved one would want. What is your experience with this aspect of, uh, of this uh, thematic?
1: That's a great point, Sergio. Um, I've had that experience many times. We have an LTAC in our hospital, and we do get patients from the LTAC quite frequently. And... Um, I will talk to those family members you know most of the time they are trached and um, prolonged mechanical ventilation patients and um, so I, I will introduce that you know he family members very sick these are the issues that are going on and obviously they're getting sicker they had to be transferred to the ICU and I'll provide that data of you know patients with tracheostomy in general have a 60 percent mortality of one year and I'll go through that and, and they will tell me you know I never knew that information. I probably would not have done this if I knew that they, you know, that they would, their mortality so high or they're unlikely to survive the hospitalization, especially when you add other, uh, con, you know, comorbidities, uh, you know, uh, with severe cardiomyopathy, renal failure, all these other things on top of the tracheostomy. Um, so, yeah, talking to family and going through those things, I think, um, like you said, I, I do think there's a, Big disconnect with communication of family prior to having this procedure done.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I do think that that again, I mean, um, uh, what I would what I would suggest, I mean, to all our listeners is that if they are tracking duration of mechanical ventilation, which I'm sure they are, the next time they think of these patients on a prolonged mechanical ventilation path as just outliers, to maybe refocus and say, okay there are things that we can do specifically for the for that population and i think like you said i mean you've seen the same thing small number of patients large amount of resources some uh, systems have actually quantified this just from a cost perspective and in one large multi hospital system i saw data that these patients constituted 1% of their population yet it was almost 10% of their total cost of care so really a disproportionate amount of resources from a cost perspective and I think from a outcome perspective by focusing on the A to F bundles early on the, we I think we can achieve better outcomes which is really getting patients back to a functional state as soon as possible and liberating them from the ICU but also by having these conversations in a systematic and organized way I think we will provide better information to families to make better decisions that are aligned with the care that they want for their loved ones. And in many cases, avoiding unnecessary care, I think, would be a big plus for, for the patient. What are your, your – any any final thoughts, I mean, John, in terms of what you recommend people who are interested in this or any final thoughts in terms of what you have learned from this whole experience?
1: Um, I I think it's a it's an easy uh, win, to be honest with you. I think, like you said, preventing unnecessary procedures, uh, implementing the A through F bundle and uh, having these family meetings is uh, I think they're they're all tied together. And, um, you know, I would just say, you know, obviously uh, get some baseline data and then, you know, just follow your data here, your slides, your uh, template that you already laid out. Mine is uh, meet with family on day one, five, and seven, and discuss um, have these family meetings to discuss um, the plan of care, and uh, include your entire team, and um, go from there.
0: Excellent. So I think that um, we'll we'll stop here, and uh, thank you so much, John, for sharing your experience with us. For our listeners, uh, we hope that uh, this was uh, something that you can adopt. A- <clears throat> or or use. I mean, if you're already doing something similar. And uh, we look forward to our next uh, clinical webinar. John, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Sergio.
0: Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.